Luke 22, starting in verse 11. Of course, it's the words of Christ to his disciples, and he says that you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room and prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And he prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them that I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Here before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I say to you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And then he had some bread and he took it and gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is the body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, just recently, I had come across a book written about the um, Lord's Supper. And this book is called Come to the Table. It's written by an author whose name is John Mark Hicks. And what is written in this book was, was really something that, that caused me to look at the communion table of Christ in a way that I never had noticed before. He writes that we are all shaped by our experience. When we think about church, we conceive it in many different ways that approximate our own experience. When we think about the Lord's Supper, our minds are, are filled with, with images from our own experiences. We think about pews in a church building. We think about multiple cup trays, unleavened bread in form of crackers. We think about a man officiating out of a pulpit. And men standing there behind an altar with their arms crossed solemnly with a silent meditation and focused attention on the death of Jesus. And yet then the author goes, goes on and he asks the rhetorical question. When he says, but what was the practice of the Lord's Supper like in the first century? It appears that the very practice of the supper in the, in the early church was actually very different from our own experience of what we consider to be the Lord's Supper. Now in our scripture reading here a moment ago in the book of Joshua, once, once the Israelites had gone through that Jordan River, there was a command to, to have 12 stones out of that river. And multiple generations later, many children saw those, those exact stones and they asked the question, what do these stones mean? Because after all, they had lived I mean, generations and generations after that had happened. There was no way that they ever really could have understood exactly what those stones meant. When those children looked at those symbolic stones, all they saw was just a pile of rocks. And as I read this quote out of that book, for the very first time, a light bulb had gone off in my head thinking that for a very long time, I had been looking at the Lord's table through the eyes of a child. Because 
for a very long time, I would see communion as being nothing but a speck of a cracker and a very small cup of grape juice. And that's, that's all that, that I was able to even see as it pertains to the Lord's Supper. But as I have been experiencing, and as we have seen in this series called The Bible in Color, in order for us to understand and to love Jesus deeper and more intimately, in order for us to comprehend what the scriptures are communicating to us, in order for us to see and to experience the Lord's Supper in color and no longer in grainy black and white, we must no longer do so with American eyes and with American ears. We need Old Testament eyes. We need Old Testament ears. And we need a Hebrew spirit in order for us to experience this in color. When we Americans think of the Lord's Supper, we need to mentally envision on the table rather than an altar. We need to envision a table rather than an altar. Now here in our text, I believe it was in verse 14, it says that, that Jesus is reclining at a table. And as we know, that table had been in the upper room. And yet, much later, much later after this, though, as we see that original church spring up, we know that these churches met inside houses. And so what we are up against as we approach the Lord's Supper every single week is that we are a people who are only acquainted with, with a cathedral rather than having church in our houses. We know pews, but we do not know chairs that would lean back, in, almost like, like a couch in these days. We know altars, but we, we have very rarely had the Lord's Supper at an actual space that has a table, where we all are making eye contact with each other and we're right next to each other. Now, I believe that God is much more concerned about where, where our hearts are as we sing, as we preach, as we have, have communion together. I believe that is what is most important. It's not really exactly how we do it as, as a method. And yet, having said that, even with the greatest and the most purest of intentions, there are many dangers to having an altar. Because as we really consider, what an altar cultivates is individualism is isolation. I'm over here, you're over there, you're way back there, you're, you know, all, all scattered around. Altars cultivate silence and sorrow exclusively as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And yet a table, as we are enjoying the Lord's Supper together, this is cultivating community. It cultivates very intense interaction with each other. It means gratitude and joy that is written on our faces as we interact with each other about what Christ has accomplished for us. And so once we have conjured up a mental image of a table rather than an altar, next we need to also envision a meal rather than a sample. Now, as we know about Jesus all throughout the Gospel accounts, it seems like all Jesus ever does is go from, from one table to another, or from one meal to another. It seems like that is all that he's doing 
in the gospel accounts. Now, in our text here, Jesus actually shares a couple of meals with his disciples. As we saw in our text, it is Passover time. And what I love about this is that it was only about a year or so ago when we were in Florida. We had a Jewish Christian come to our church and actually conduct Passover feasts called, called them a Seder. And it was by far the most beautiful thing that I have ever seen in the church. That's because every year, it would usually start as, as the youngest child in the room who was capable. He would ask four questions. And among those questions is, why is this night different from all the other nights? And then one would explain out of scriptures just why exactly the Passover meal is different than, than um, all other kinds of meals. I mean, every single component of that meal was symbolizing something in a very meaningful way. For instance, they would have salt water at, at Passover. And what this salt water is representing are all of those Hebrew tears bitterly shed, all of those years that they had been enslaved in Egypt. Likewise, you would also have herbs that were very bitter. And the reason why you would eat sour herbs in this way is because it would make you cry tears as you ate. This was to remember all of those tears that they had shed, all of those 400 plus years of Egyptian slavery. You would also have diced apples and spices. And that red conjures up bricks and mortar that all of those, those years their, their ancestors in Egypt had to make bricks under the, the hot and blazing sun. Wine is symbolic of, of their liberation and their freedom from slavery and from their bondage. Matzah bread, of course, means that, that as the Israelites left Egypt, they didn't have time to really bake bread, but, but rather what they needed was, was something that really could be made quickly so that they could eat it as they walked out of Egypt. And then, of course, the most moving part of the whole experience at Passover. Every household would then also consume a lamb. And everybody who has ever given their life to Christ, the Lamb of God, knows just, just how moving that really is. And so Jesus begins sharing a Passover meal with his disciples, but then, I believe the reason why he does this, it's not just because it is at, at that time of a Passover, but, but really that Passover is going to be fulfilled in the Christian age in the form of the Lord's Supper. And so Jesus institutes his Lord's Supper. As the early Christians live a little bit after this. We know that that table remained that very center of life and worship of, of the first century church. And yet we still have to go back to our own society because that was a long time ago. But you and I are living in this bite-sized, microwavable world where, where on Twitter you can write things, but it's got to be 40 words or less, right? It's like what... No matter what it is, give it to me easy, give it to me fast, and give it to me not now, but, but you know, yesterday, one month ago, give it to me then. 
You see, in this country, we are accustomed to likening communion and the Lord's Supper with a tiny little speck of bread and a tiny little shot glass of grape juice. And yet, if a first century Christian were to walk into any American assembly, wait, what are you guys doing? And I think that their response would be that we observe the Lord's Supper. I mean, a meal, Lord's Supper. And it seems like what we have been doing for so long in this country is not so much the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's sampler. You see, our American way of life, it's like we just need to rush through everything that we do. We need to rush through the Lord's Supper. Boom, boom, okay, I've done that, and so now what is next after this? And let's rush through that. What is beginning to help me approach this memorial in a more meaningful way? is that rather than looking at it as, as a sample, what I conjure up in my mind is the mental image of um, a table at Thanksgiving time. Because at Thanksgiving time, everything is very slowed down. It's very relaxed that we take our time with. Maybe if we looked at communion not, not as a midnight snack, but as Thanksgiving day, maybe it would change some things about how we approach communion. And the only time that we have ever experienced this, about having communion at an actual table as a full meal, was when we lived in China. And we would slow that down intentionally. We would make it an actual meal to where, instead of just, just a, a very small speck of bread, we would break bread. And yet everybody would, would um, have a very large piece of broken bread. And I mean, with, with every single bite that you took, it seemed like the more emotional you became and the more alive that you felt in Jesus. Where it begins with that very first bite of bread. And what comes to your mind is that first nail in Jesus' hand. And then next bite is the other nail that went into his other hand. Then the very next bite after that is the nail that went through his feet. Another bite and you see him lifted up on the cross. And yet, eventually, though, what washes over you, the more that you eat, and eat, and eat, and eat, is that Jesus loves me. Jesus cares about me. My name is written in heaven at this very moment in time. It doesn't matter what happens in this world, the love of God covers my soul. <clears throat> Every single sin that I have ever committed, it has been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. And it just goes on and on. Every bite that you take, it's like it just draws you closer to each other into the side of Jesus. And yet the most beautiful thing about it, though, is that as you sit there looking at everybody at this table, sitting right next to each other, what especially washes over you, Jesus Christ himself is present at this table. Jesus' very spirit is communing with us and, and we with him. And I have never felt a stronger love in my heart for Christians or for Christ himself than when we made the Lord's Supper an actual meal that we had shared at the table. And that's because, as I discovered, there is something sacred. There is something so utterly transformative and, and, and just utterly life-changing 
When Christians sit down with other Christians to intentionally and to deliberately commune with Jesus in his memorial feast. And yet we also need to envision covenant rather than custom. Now in the book of Exodus, in those days when you had a Passover, when it began in chapter 12 of Exodus, God says that this day will be a memorial to you, a memorial, he says. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout all of your generations. And so the Passover is really all about remembrance. And as we see all throughout the, the Old Testament, it seems like left and right God is very adamant about Israel remembering. He says, for instance, don't forget that once upon a time you were slaves in Egypt. Remember that it was God who made you a people. It was not your own doing. It was because of the love and the kindness of God. That is where you have come from. And so remember this. And the Hebrew word for remember is so, it's, it's really beautiful. It means to intentionally call something to your mind, but to do so in a way that, that leads to actual action in your life. And that is true nowhere else more than in the Lord's Supper. As Jesus says, here is bread. It is symbolic of, of my body that is just about to go to the cross and to die for, for all of the people who will ever live. Maybe we need to become just like small children and to ask ourselves the very next time that we partake of the Lord's Supper, what is the significance of this bread? What does this bread mean? What does this cup mean? And why is this bread and this cup different from, from all the other cups and from all the other bread that we consume? I think the most helpful explanation of the way that Hebrews look at remembering. You know, as we all know, there is a kind of remembering that we are not to do. As pertains to who we used to be in the world, Christ is very clear about it. He says, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy for my kingdom because he's longing for who he, who he used to be, as we all know. And yet, in the Hebrew world, world there, is, there is this whole other kind of remembering. Whereas they would go into a Passover Seder meal, Anytime that they would have anxieties or uncertainties on their mind, rather than going into the future directly into those things, what they would do is they would symbolically have their backs turned to their anxiety and uncertainty. And yet now they have their eyes fixed on, on, on all the times God came through for his people, all, all of his providence, all of his rescuing that he had done for them over and over again. And so what they're doing is they are walking into the future backwards with their eyes focused on what God already has done for us rather than looking at our worries and our fears and our anxieties. And I just think that is so gorgeous and beautiful to have in our minds. How as we partake of the Lord's Supper, Jesus also says remember. And so instead of, of concentrating on on our own anxieties, on our own heart, heartache and fears. We do the exact same thing and we look back and we remember Jesus on the cross 
Jesus on the empty tomb, and we all remember then that if Jesus could do that for me, there is nothing too great for him to handle going on in my life right now. If he could walk out of that tomb living and breathing, even after he was crucified, then there is nothing that is too great for him to handle. That we remember that, that once we had been slaves of Satan, once we had been enslaved to sin, once we were dead, once we were enemies of God, but now Jesus has made us his church. And this is not our own doing. It is because of the grace and the kindness of God expressed to us through Jesus Christ. And so when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, when we live our lives, as the old expression goes, we, we are what we remember. And then lastly, when we approach his table, it's important that we also envision in our minds Independence Day, rather than a funeral. Now we need to examine ourselves every time that we eat this bread and that we drink the cup. We need to reflect on the cross where he died for our sins. But we especially need to, to all meditate on that empty tomb that he walked out. Because as, as I'm beginning to experience, as I partake of the Lord's Supper like this, what washes over me is that, you know, this really isn't a weekly funeral that we go to every single week. But rather what this is, is that this is the Red Sea. This is our version of the Red Sea. After God had led the Israelites out of that Red Sea, out of slavery, into that wilderness, headed into the Promised Land. That was the, the happiest moment of their lives. And in the same way, God has delivered us from, from our own Pharaoh and from our own slavery, and that is Satan. And so, with that in mind, I mean, if this is also a Red Sea moment, this is a celebration. This is a moment where, where all of us can, can, you know, rejoice and say that we have been set free. And yet, in this first century, though, if you lived in these cities, you would have what was known of as, as a Roman banquet. What's interesting about these Roman meals in the first century is that only Roman men were allowed to come. And these, these Roman meals would, would always have this specific order. It would begin having a meal together. Then you would have a libation, which was if you were, were not of God, you would have, have a sacrifice for, for a God where you would have a cup of wine poured out in order to honor that God. Then you would have what was known of as a symposium, where a lot of times you would have a philosopher come in and speak to everybody, have a debate at other times, and so forth. And yet, when you would go into a banquet just like this in the first century, you would have a seating chart. And it would be like the, the honored guest would be right here. He was the most important person at that table. Here would be the man who actually lived in that house. And then it just keeps going from the most important all the way to the least important over here. And so you would have the, the um, aristocrat over here, wealthy people over here, luminaries over here. And way over here, you would have a, a slave. 
And the slave's job was to wash everybody's feet as he walked around, and then finally he could finally eat. And yet something else about these meals is that is that the more over here you were, really the better all of the food and wine was. And yet the closer that you got over here, it would be worse and worse and worse as far as food and wine was. And one writer says about these meals is that when, when one would recline at a meal in relation to its hopes, this was an open acknowledgement to all presence of one's social status. And so really, for, for a lot of people, the main reason why you would go at these feasts is to see where you ranked in that hierarchy, in the social status. It was all about ego. It was about, who am I greater than? Who am I left, you know, not quite as great as? And here's where this really gets interesting. The early Christians adopted their, their own order of worship after that Roman banquet form and set Their worship assemblies would always start by having a meal together, a common meal together, a fellowship meal. Then you would have a libation, which was his bread and his cup at communion. And then at last you would have a symposium where, where everyone there could learn exactly what the scriptures had said. And you would hear the gospel preached. Now my favorite thing about Jesus is that Jesus would sit down with anybody in this world and have a meal with them. And the thing about the Lord's Supper that, that I missed for so many years, and it's just so incredible, is that the Lord's Supper brings all kinds of people together who the world would think do not belong here together at the same table as a family. If you look around sometimes as you partake of the Lord's Supper, you can see people who you have had conflict with before in the past. You can see people who occasionally might, might even annoy you or bother you. People who have hurt you before. I think about Jesus as, as he sits there in this specific moment in Luke chapter 22. Because as it comes from, from that vantage point of the apostles, really what they care about is which one of us is the greatest, which one of us is going to sit right here at this feast. As Jesus sits there with them, though, he completely turns all of that upside down. When just before he has a Passover feast with them, as well as the Lord's Supper, what does he do? He goes around. Jesus stands up from his seat of honor, and he sits in the seat of a servant. And he goes from, from every single one of those disciples, and he starts washing their, their feet. And then what he says is that, in, in this feast of mine, in this kingdom of mine, this is also where a um, servant is going to sit. And yet this chair over here is also where a servant sits. And here, and here, in the most important chair, that too is the chair of a servant. I mean, he just completely turns all of that upside down. And I think about what we find in the book of Galatians as we realize how different it is now. 
at this specific feast where it says, but, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor as it is in reference to the law of Moses there. He says, for you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then hear, hear these words. For all of you who have, who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus have clothed yourselves with him. And now there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so you sit down at this brand new feast called the Lord's Supper. And there are men there, and there are women there, and there are outcasts there. I mean, when the church all come together for worship, when they would sit down for the Lord's Supper, it was not at all uncommon for a Jew to be sitting right next to a Gentile, for a, a slave master sitting right next to his slave, for a Roman tax collector sitting right next to a woman who just three days ago was a prostitute on the street. And the guy who is bringing them a message and, and a teaching from the scriptures, he was the very same guy who just years ago was throwing Christians into prison, some even killing them. That guy was the guy who was bringing that, that message. I mean, just look at the motley crew that, that God is bringing all together as a family at his table. It's no longer who is most important. It's no longer about who is not, not quite as great as who. There is only one who is great at this table. And that's why we call it the Lord's Supper. And I just love that song that we occasionally sing. And no one is a stranger here. Everyone belongs. Finding our forgiveness here, we in turn forgive all wrongs. And I love that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done in your life, no matter what you look like, no matter how you smell, everyone has a place at this table. And this meal is for everybody. So as we, we close this morning, I just want to invite us to a couple of things. One is, as we look at the Lord's Supper, that maybe what we need to do is just like, just as those Israelites have done long ago. That we remember in a way that gets our minds completely off of our pain and our suffering and our worries and our fears and our uncertainties. And that we have our mind on nothing but on the cross and on the empty tomb. And all the times God has specifically come to our rescue, all the ways that that looks like for us. Once again, we are what we remember. And then lastly, I just want to dream with you. This is probably going to sound like the ramblings of a madman. What if one day, I don't know when, maybe on a fifth Sunday, maybe someday in the future next year, what if we were to have a meal in this church? And yet instead of all of the ordinary condiments that we have, what if we were to have a meal that was just the Lord's Supper? Where we had a, a full meal out of the bread. Where we had interaction about that communion. Maybe even had a Jewish Christian who I know come in perhaps. 
and to walk us through a Passover feast and exactly how all of this points the way to this. And then leaving that atmosphere having brand new eyes full of color about just how beautiful and how, how compelling this is. Whether we want to do that or not, what truly matters is that every single time that we eat this bread and that we drink this cup, that we envision it in our minds as a table, as a meal, as a covenant, and as our Independence Day in Jesus Christ. Because after all, as I said a moment ago, there is nothing that is more sacred, more transformative, and more utterly life-changing than when Christians sit down at a table with other Christians in order to intentionally and to deliberately commune with Jesus in his feet. 